0: Hi, guys. I'm Trish. I'm Sarah. Sarah and I are attorneys and founders of the law firm Lincoln Durr in Charlotte, North Carolina. Together, we've been practicing law now for two decades, which just kind of makes me cringe every time I say that for a long time. But we're using this podcast to share the lessons we've learned inside the courtroom, outside the courtroom as business owners, and just in life in general. So welcome to Trying to Win. Hey, I'm Sarah. And I'm Trish. And
1: this is our podcast called Trying to Win, where we talk about being trial lawyers. And stuff. Moms, business owners, (laughs) whatever we can think of that might be entertaining to people and hopefully informative to people on a given day. And today we are going to talk about bad facts versus good facts and how we manage those when we are managing cases.
0: Yeah, I think it's supposed to be is the glass half full or half empty? And that's kind of a, a fitting way to frame it, I think, because when we're talking about good facts and bad facts, I think what I would say is that a good lawyer distinguishes and is able to discern between good facts and bad facts. A great lawyer can take a bad fact and make it a good fact, right? We were taught, that we were both trained that way.
1: Or at least neutralize it. Even if you can't make it a good fact, if you can neutralize it, it's ideal. And every case, Every case has good facts and bad facts on both sides, honestly. And so the skill of great trial lawyers is figuring out how to turn those bad facts into good facts or at a minimum to neutralize them. So kind of what do you do? What's your and it's usually something that you think about as the case goes on, but I think it really gets brought into focus as we're getting ready for trial, right? So what do you do when you're really kind of digging down and preparing to try and analyze your good facts and your bad facts and how to, how to work those bad facts into maybe being a good fact?
0: Right, when we're getting ready for trial, or maybe even before, I kind of do it in one note, but sometimes I literally, I've done it with Post-it notes, I've done it with um, a chart, like just drawing on a big tablet and just kind of going through and saying, well, okay, what are the good things about the case? What are the bad things about the case? And you kind of go through and identify them. And as you identify them, you write your diffuser. I call it a diffuser. What's the diffusion? What are you going to do? How are you going to handle this bad fact? How are you going to highlight this good fact? And I can give you a couple of examples of some bad facts that I actually think can be turned into good facts. One common theme that we see is where you've got, it could be a labor and delivery. It could just be in any kind of case. The themes that are always wanted to be painted are, well, the records, the records, the records, the records, the records. And we take this document that's meant to be a communication tool for providers, and we turn it into the CSI vehicle kind of thing. Like, And we're going back and, and looking at every single time stamp, and when did they enter this, and when did they enter that, and was did they document this, and that. And there's all this hoopla about this documentation. And there's always, I mean, always, 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 Something wrong with a chart that's not perfect. Every time. Every single time. I don't care what you give, what kind of chart you yes. give me. There's a word you shouldn't have dictated. There's something you shouldn't have said that you said and something you Somebody wish you forgot said. to check a oh, box. forgot to check a box, hit the wrong drop down, whatever it might be. Every time. There's always a problem with it. And most of the time when we're defending a case, it's there is a darth of documentation. What's not in the record? You know, that famous story about, I think this was Jim Ferguson, who's a plan, well-known, awesome plans lawyer trying a case and i heard it wasn't my case this is just a on the street talk and he had a nurse on the witness stand and he questioned it's back in the old flow sheet days before the emr the electronic medical record was where you actually hand wrote on this trifold document and he had a nurse on the witness stand and he didn't ask her one question about what was written on that trifold. he only asked her about all of the things that weren't on there so we have this a lot. A lot of my cases are you, you didn't document X or you did not document when you started the IV or whatever it is. Well, that's a bad fact because you'd like to have everything that you want your DNA there. You want all the fingerprints to fall into place, right? Well, they're not. They're not going to. So where, how do you handle something like that? Well, I know I what I do is, well, jurors, do you want your healthcare providers taking care of you or do you want them documenting in the chart? John Golding told me a long time ago, he said, uh, Document and do it well and let your patient go to hell. <laughs> that's what I used to say. Because the idea is, is that if I'm so worried about documentation and I've got a critically ill patient, why? Why am I am I more worried about defending myself or, or am I worried about the bedside care, right? and That's an example I can think of. The code blues are a classic,
1: you know, where literally nurses are writing down their arms as they're trying to also push drugs, also try to do chest compressions, also try and bag, mask, ventilate. That was kind of the classic um, circumstance where documentation really... And then they would go back and try and recreate on a code sheet what they had been writing up and down their arms, on their hands, wherever they could find a place to write it down. But to me, if the patient got the best possible care and they did everything that they could to try and resuscitate them, the fact that it wasn't documented is something that we can always turn around into a, at least a neutral fact and not necessarily a bad fact with approaching it that way. But I do the same thing, you know, get out a big board or create some type of a document on the computer that has bad facts on one side, good facts on the other. And then we try and figure out how do we, how do we move the bad facts over to the good fact side? We draw lines, we, whatever list evidence under each fact. That we can use to prove it to make sure that we know how we're going to establish what that fact is for the jury and then go from there. But I think that that is such a huge part of being able to successfully defend the case is dealing with your bad facts. So for a lot of lawyers, this may seem like a pretty basic question, but I'm not sure that there's consensus in the bar on how to deal with bad facts, say, in Either in a deposition or a trial, how do you deal with them? What do you do with it? Gosh, you know, okay, it depends. (laughs) Uh
0: huh. Right. Um, The best answer. No, it it kind of does. But so if I've got a bad fact, for example, and I know that it's going to get trotted out in front of the jury over and over and over again, a lot of times you'll try to beat them to the punch and just what What do you say? I'll use your your quote. What you need to do with a bad fact is put your arms all around it and love all over it. Isn't that what you say? Something like that. In other words, you're going to have to embrace it. You're going to have to deal with it. It's there. So go ahead and prepare your jury for it. Talk to your doctor or whoever it is about how are you going to approach the the response to this. I mean, you've got an issue here. How are we going to approach it? I think it's just dissecting it all and looking at the pieces. A lot of times the bad facts, though, are not keeping your eye on the ball. Okay. And what I mean by that is they're distractors. They are red herrings. They are, okay, you didn't document this, but like, so what? Or you wrote the wrong thing. You interpreted something the wrong way and documented it later when you were going back and you actually did give epi at this time and it's documented somewhere else. So you're wrong and you, whatever. Those are just all things that that are, have nothing to do with the call. Like the record doesn't cause an injury 99% of the time, unless it's a prescription error or misread of order or something. And you know, the documentation doesn't create a, a claim and but yet it's such a big deal. It is such a big deal because there's always something wrong with it.
1: Well, and they always try to highlight that, right? Because that's the one thing that's easy to point out and say, look, they didn't write anything down. We have a case right now with a with somebody who took a call over the weekend and they were on call. They were not in their office. They were not at the hospital. They EMR was still relatively new for this particular practice and they didn't write down a note about the phone call. Oh,
0: I've got that case but,
1: too. <laughs> Let's, you know, let's back up because we are in the age of smartphones, we are in the age of cell phone records, and we are able to go ahead and get the text message about that phone call. We're able to document how long the provider was on the phone with the patient at the time based upon both their records and our records. So we know that the phone call lasted nine minutes. And the contention from the plaintiff is a very simple inexplicable recommendation that was given to them allegedly over the phone by our provider. And there is no way that after a nine minute phone call that the recommendation that they are saying was made was the recommendation that was given. And no one's ever going to believe that after a nine minute phone call, you can just dismiss the fact as irrelevant. You can try and deflect the fact, or you can turn it into, you can have some explanation for why you didn't do what they're contending, you should have have written this down. Well, the reason I didn't write it down was, A, I was worried about taking care of the patient more than I was worried about writing something down. B, well, I knew that based upon the recommendation that I gave, that patient was going to go somewhere where there was actually a physician who was going to lay hands on them, lay eyes on them, and really be able to document accurately what was going on. Because me taking a call while I'm on call, I can't evaluate that patient over the phone. I need somebody to lay eyes on them. So I knew what was going to happen to them. There was no point in me writing anything down at that point. Cause I told him to go see the doctor, you know, those sorts of things to, to just flip the script a little bit to the other side and say, this is just not what they're saying it is.
0: So you've had, you talked about radiology cases in the last episode and I'll just, we can close on this, but the issue with radiology cases is almost always something is there that you see now in hindsight. So the patient actually had lung cancer on the x-ray. You missed the nodule. But now when you go back, now that you know where this thing grew and it's bigger, it's been identified by a subsequent provider, you know where, it, where it's from. And then when you look at back on that old x-ray, there's this little thing right there. You know what? It, it is there. Mm-hmm. So now you've got a physician who has to own the fact that I didn't see it then, but I see it now. How do you diffuse something like that? I mean, is that diffusable?
1: I think it is diffusable and and the way that I have diffused it in cases where we've actually tried a radiology case is the other side inevitably overplays their hand. And so they come in and they put the image up on the screen as the very first piece of evidence, right? But they don't just put the image up on the screen or up on a blow up or whatever they're using. They put it up and they have a huge red circle around it that makes it so stinking obvious that nobody could... Ever have possibly missed it. And the way that I start by diffusing it is the way this side is going to always show you this image is there's going to be a big red circle around it. And the first thing that you need to understand as you're reviewing the evidence in this case, and I don't think this is argument. I think this is helping the jury understand how the evidence is going to come in and what, how they should view the evidence is to say, my doctor never got this image (laughs) with a red circle around it. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Right.
1: And inevitably they do it every time. It's so predictable. It's it's unnerving. But I think they think that that's very persuasive to juries. And frankly, they have to know that a jury is going to look at, say, an MRI or a CT scan, particularly of something like the abdomen,
0: where there's just so much going on in those images, right? No, I can't see. I have never been able to figure those things out. It's like looking at a weather map. Like they have no idea what they're looking
1: at. I mean, they have no idea what it is that they're looking at. And so I think it's a combination of the plaintiffs believing that they need to be able to show it to the jury, but also knowing that a jury is not going to be able to interpret this in any way. So of course they're going to go, of course somebody could miss that. I mean, I have no idea what I'm looking at. So they put the big red circle around it but it's really unfair to judge a doctor based upon a big red circle that didn't exist at the time the physician was reviewing those studies. But that's a great example of a bad fact that you can, you can deflect a little bit in the way that the other side presents it It plays their hand. Um, It's also, you know, talking a lot, particularly in radiology cases about the difference between a misinterpretation of something that's on the image Versus an error of perception, which um, I've been talking about a lot in a radiology case that I have right now. I heard you talking about this. Yeah. And there's a lot written in the radiology literature about errors of perception. But to me, not perceiving something is being human. It's not being negligent. Oh, sure. Right, right, right. So if you can get the other side's experts to admit, I can't say that they reviewed the study too quickly. I can't say that they didn't go through their normal routine of reviewing the study. I can't say that they did anything at all in terms of not looking at every single image on the study. I can't say that they did anything wrong in the way that they looked at the study. All I'm saying is that this was an error of perception. Well, in my mind, an error of perception is not negligence, it's being human. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. And if we can turn that into either a motion for summary judgment or an argument for a jury, I think it's one that can win. But we'll see. That case
0: hasn't been tried yet. No, I think that's, I think that's important. And I, I, when you were talking about that, I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I don't know why they don't put something about that in the informed consent, you know, the document you sign to say radiographs are art, not a science. And while some things are perceptible, some things are not. If your symptoms continue, please seek additional care and we can do it with other studies. I wonder why they don't put that in there, you know, because that is, A risk of the procedure. What they do for IV contrast? I'm
1: not sure that they sign. I'm not sure they sign an informed consent for radio. Yeah, if you're getting contrast, but otherwise you don't get informed consent when you don't sign one. And the other issue that's going to start popping up um, is the use of artificial intelligence and the interpretation of radiology studies, which... The vast majority of radiology practices are now using AI to supplement their interpretations. How? Yeah. It's
0: like reading tea leaves. Come on.
1: It's happening. And uh, it's something that we all need to be aware of and something that I'm sure that we'll be talking about on some future podcast some years from now. <laughs> well, they will never
0: substitute us yeah, for not, AI. No, I can no, promise you not that. No, not you and I. <laughs> I mean,
1: <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. In any event. So, yeah.
0: So, closing arguments, what are the key takeaways? Takeaways, is a glass half full or half empty? The answer is yes. (laughs) So, I think it's uh, always be prepared to deal with your bad facts. That's right. It's a matter of interpretation. That's it, though. But, I mean, that's the big picture here.
1: Excellent. Well, so, for our listeners, give us your verdict. Comment. Send us an email. Let us know what you thought about this episode. Subscribe. Download where you get your podcasts. And if you have questions or comments or subjects that you'd love to hear about from us, email us at tryingtowinatlinconder.com and visit us on our Facebook page, Trying to Win. And tune in next time. Yeah, absolutely. See
0: you later.